Hello there, and welcome to the Comic Book Tesseract, the weekly comic setcast that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I'm Jason Polieff. Every week we review and preview the world of comics along with other facets of geek chic culture. Justin's down with the funk, and I don't mean Parliament Funkadelic. He's got some nasty head cold that's keeping him away from the microphone tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and do a solo show this week. I've got a couple of books going to talk about. Um, some of these we may not have talked about because they're not shared. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and start off with Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe. Now, this is book four of a four-issue miniseries. And really it was a waste of a miniseries. This book gets to the end and stops. They played around a little bit with the fourth wall. They hinted at it earlier in a couple of books. They have some interesting sessions. But the book never pays off. There's never fully a story as to what's going on. It seems like they wanted to play with some elements of Deadpool and play with the character. And I think they've done that better in its own, in the regular Deadpool universe and series than they could ever have done with this miniseries and the way that they put it together. And especially with the way that it ends, because it doesn't really end, it just stops. Because there's a story that they could have even gone in and told, and they just stop. They Throughout the series, they've had him do some interesting fights, uh, shown some interesting ways of taking out some Marvel characters, but all in all, it's been very little payoff. You don't get to see as much as you'd like to see of him taking out the people. You don't get to see the reaction of the heroes as they go against Deadpool. It's more of a, hey, here, I'm Deadpool, and now I'm going to kill you. Oh, wait, here's the next villain or hero that I'm facing off, and I kill them. So there's not much as far as the big payoff of being able to see a big drag-out fight between Deadpool and a number of the Marvel heroes or even villains that would be going up against him. And the story itself was rather lackluster. It was looking like they were excuse, and this was a great thing for Marvel if they because they just wanted to sell comic books and uh, piss on their fans. And Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe was a great way of doing it. They did. I was thoroughly upset. Uh, not just with the ending of this book, even though they played with some interesting tropes, particularly with the fourth wall, uh, but I've seen better stuff elsewhere with that same intent, and they didn't go anywhere with it. It was just saying, hey, we can play with the fourth wall, so we're going to, and that was where this thing fell apart. Uh, Batman Dark Knight, uh, this is issue number 12. Trapped by the Scarecrow, uh, Greg Hurwitz has taken over writing duties from David Finch. Finch is still on, working on the art, at least for now. It'll be uh, interesting. This delved in, and it really frustrated me with this book. I've not been liking this book for a long time. A lot of it was too Hollywood. I felt it was too much of, here's an action flick. Something that Marvel does with a lot of their comics is just, here's action for action's sake. We're not telling you story. We're not giving you characters. And we're certainly not developing them. Um, or we're only superficially developing them. This tried to delve deeper into the characters. Unfortunately, it felt like it was material that's been well-trodden. It deals with the Scarecrow and Batman in fear. And it's well-trod territory. They didn't do anything new for the New 52. Uh, and it just felt, you know as a rehash of something that we've already been there, done that. So hopefully there'll be some new twist to this book because it's got to have something going for it. Otherwise it, it's not going to stay in my pull list and it, it's getting perilously close. It's walking the plank. Uh, Bendis and Bagley cut out issue number four of brilliant. This is about a group of teenagers that actually, sorry, 20 year old college students that have figured out 
how to give themselves superpowers. Now, in the previous three issues, we found out that one of them had used it on himself and used those powers to rob a bank in a casino. Here we find out what happens when it all hits the fan and the police come looking for him as the guy that robbed the bank and robbed the casino. And his friends find out that he did those things with the powers that he got from their experimentation. Uh, the other thing that they've been dealing with is his powers aren't stable. So he doesn't have full control over them all the time. So now the friends are trying to get their friend who's just returned back to college to try and help them to stabilize the experiment so that he'll ha he'll have control. This book took a while in getting out. It was the fourth issue was late, but they've done a wonderful job with this book. And the story, at least, is unique enough that I want to keep following it to see where it's going. Um, I, I don't think it, there's much of an excuse for being late. Um, I think it's just Bendis is doing a lot of stuff over at Marvel. Bagley's doing st a lot of work. And I think, I don't know that it was necessarily one or the other that was the holdup between the two of them. That something fell apart and they weren't able to get the book out in time. I'm glad to finally get it back. I was kind of missing it. And it's not your typical superhero tale, uh, but it's not a it's not a crime noir novel. Um, even though you know the guy's gone around and, and done some you know bank robbery and uh, the casino, it, it's not about the crime. It's about these students who are friends and how they're dealing with the that they now have the ability to give each other to, to give themselves superpowers. And what they're going to do with them, you know, what potential, where are they going to go, what's going to happen when they find out, when the government finds out that they have the capability of creating these superpowers. And I'm just wondering how far Bendis and Bagley are going to take this story. If they're going to keep going and exploring deeper and deeper with these students, or are they going to have a resolution, you know, where they're, that's potentially fine or potentially just kind of, here's an ending point. And maybe we'll come back to this world and, and give a resolution. But brilliant is, you know, if you're looking for something that's a little bit different from, you know, this typical Marvel or DC story, it's got some great characters in it, some wonderful artwork. And so I'm really enjoying that. I'm going to kick on over to uh, G.I. Joe Cobra. This is the uh, Costa and Fuso addition to the G.I. Joe family of the uh, current arc takes place concurrently with the G.I. Joe title and the G.I. Joe Snake Eyes title. Uh, this, they've introduced Firefly, um, who I know a lot of people, was a fan, he was a fan favorite uh, back in the days of the cartoon and even in Larry Hammond's run on G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. Uh, so you get to see him. They've changed him a little bit, um, particularly from the story that he was given in Hammond's run on G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. Uh, but this G.I. Joe universe is entirely different. There's a lot of characters that are like that and a lot of characters that never even showed up in the Hammer Real American Hero uh, story arc. Um, they've kind of updated G.I. Joe. Yeah, they've given them you know, a lot more technological people because we're in a technologically advanced world. So it takes place in the modern era as opposed to 20 years ago. Uh, with this, you know, it, there's elements of espionage, but this book focuses on Cobra and what's going on within the Cobra organization. And particularly, this is dealing with you know, the infighting amongst the top-tier levels of Cobra between Cobra Commander and his lieutenants 
and especially amongst the lieutenants themselves that they jockey for position to earn favor with the commander or to eventually replace him as they don't necessarily like that he's been chosen to be the commander. Um, this all takes place from the uh, crossover that they did between all three books uh, of Cobra Command, which had the fight for uh, the Cobra Civil War uh, crossover also preceded that. And that was the cr- fight for the creation of, or to determine who would be the new Cobra commander, and then what he does with his first as his first acts of power. Um, so it picks up from that story arc with the infighting among the Cobra executives or uh, chief lieutenants. Um, if you like a military thriller, uh, particularly if you want to see the bad guy side of it, although. Because of where uh, one of the lieutenants is, a lot of this is dealing with what the G.I. Joes are doing around that. Um, but it definitely focuses more on the bad guys um, and will continue to do so. So if you like to follow the bad guy point of view and you want something that's more of a military thriller, um, then uh, J.J. Cobra. You know, is just doing some great work. I'm going to jump the fence over to DC Comics. We got Green Lantern New Guardians. This is another book that's been been giving threads and loose tie-ins to the other Green Lantern books. Um, if you've been following this, you see these little hints popping up here and there with the New Guardians. And you know, even the title itself, particularly having read the other Green Lantern books, has kind of had a sit been saying where this title is headed since the relaunch in the DC New 52. Uh, they finally wrap up this big overarching story that they've been doing. It's actually a 12-issue uh, master arc that's been going on with two six-issue sub-arcs for the trades. But it's really been one giant arc that they finally wrapped up, finally established, and... It wound up paying off in the end. There were definitely a lot of bumps along the road, uh, but Bidars is a master at these giant space epics uh, since he was working with CrossGen. So I've really enjoyed this, and uh, I'm looking forward to see where they're going to go with the Green Lantern New Guardians, particularly with what looks like it's happening in the Green Lantern Zero issue that they're going to be putting out next month, and where they're going to go with the core, especially with the... Uh, battle that they've announced um, that's going to be doing it as a crossover between the Green Lantern titles. This should be getting really good. Um, I think it's something that DC may have put off, or at least the Green Lantern writers have had intended to do before the relaunch and then put off a little bit, which may have helped because I think there was some event fatigue going on, with the, particularly with the Green Lantern universe, because they'd had the Central Core War, the War of the Lanterns, and Darkest Night. So now I think it gave them a chance to spread out, build some ground level, and let you recover from that fatigue, especially when you had the whole New 52 fatigue piling right on top of that. Uh, But I think this was kind of planned to be happening in the the Green Lantern section of the DC Universe before, and it looks like they're finally getting back around to it, and it looks like it's going to be a real fun ride. Um, So having the Green Lantern titles... I'm wondering how it's going to be for Justin with just reading the Green Lantern title versus reading New Guardians and Green Lantern Corps as well. Alright, uh, go ahead and stick on the uh, DC hit for a while. Talk about Superman. We're going to discuss this one. Um, both of us are reading it. 
and this is this book has been feeling like a bit of a throwback to some earlier Superman stories. It's Superman versus an alien creature. Yeah, you know, it deals. It has it struggles a bit with something that's very common in Superman titles, and that's that Superman is the greatest hero of them all. How do you create an enemy? For Superman, you can't just keep amping up and making stronger and more powerful villains. You, know, you wind up with a creature like Doomsday, and yes, Doomsday was a great, you know, character for what he was designed for. But unfortunately, Doomsday had one purpose, and as soon as you take him away from that purpose, it lessens the character. They've never been able to use Doomsday convincingly or appropriately since, and it's only preceded to make Doomsday a weaker villain. And this kind of felt uh, right in those same lines of here's a new villain that's strong enough to give Superman a run for his money. Uh, and you, you kind of felt that in some ways it was nice to have kind of that that old-fashioned feeling of this is some books and, and get used to, you know, some of the things you, you had to enjoy, some of the older stories. Um, I don't know how well it's going to be received by yeah, fans that are used to a bit more modern comics. I enjoyed it, but it's definitely not the strongest Superman story out. Um, and I think Superman's particularly has been struggling in the New 52. And again, a lot of that is you know, Superman struggles a lot as a title because he is such a powerful character and trying to find an enemy that is worth that. Now, one of the things that they've actually been doing, and I think rightfully chosen to do, but it's made it harder on them, is they've, for a large part, sidelined Lex Luthor. And, you know, Luthor was always the mind against the brawn of Superman. And yes, Superman has been shown to use his mind to resolve some cases, but uh, Bruce, is, Bruce Wayne as Batman is definitely the mental character, and Superman is definitely a physical character. Um, so... Uh, but to DC's credit, they have, for the most part, kept Luthor sidelined as an active villain. He's made appearances, but he's not been totally active as a villain. And uh, they've done the same with Joker, although Joker is coming back after these zero issues. So, got a lot to look forward to there. Uh, just going to mention real quick The Unwritten, which was a great, you know, and I think this, I think this issue was the end of an arc. Uh, the stories have been great, and I'm looking forward to where this next arc is going to lead us. They've been building up with a cult, and it seems like they've kind of crashed that cult down at the end, and there's a new direction coming in this book again. Not an not as much of a turn as they did to begin this arc. This is, it's going to be a continuation of, the arc, of this arc that started, as far as story goes, but they're now headed in a new direction. They've been given a new path to follow. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Unwritten is just one of the strongest, best-written, best-drawn books uh, that comes out every month. So uh, I know Justin agrees with me on that, and uh, we both said pick it up and read it. I'm going to talk about what was one of the best books I read this week. Um, you know, we could arguably make it for the month, and that's All-Star Western. This book has been spectacular since it started, it had, took a little while to get its feet under it, but it's really been going strong. And I, I love what Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiati are doing. Mortet's art looks wonderful. And what I love is that this is a character that pulls no punches. It takes place in 
at, at least at this point it's in Gotham, but it's still that old West feel. And you've you've got a guy who just as soon shoot you as take you back into prison. As long as he gets his money, he doesn't care. Well, yeah, and there's not much that he cares about. You know, he's got his girlfriend, and he doesn't really care for her. She's not his girlfriend. She's just you know the fun on the side, and she feels a little bit stronger about wanting him to be her boyfriend. But if he walks away, she's more than happy to go off and find her own peace. So it's fun to see the dynamic between those two. Plus, you get a great backup story written in, into this book, uh, which shows some of the other Western characters that DC has and has used over the years. This is the end of an arc with issue 12, so it looks like they're going to be, they might actually leave Gotham. Uh, they actually had a whole tie-in between the Crime Bible, which uh, if you were reading prior to the New 52, you may remember. It's the book of Cain that re- gives the rules for criminals to follow. Um, the Crime Bible was fighting... The Court of Owls, which was the big deal with the Batman books in the first arc in Batman, and then crossed over into all the other Bat books. Also, Western kind of shows both of them establishing themselves in Gotham when Gotham was still a boomtown and growing as a city, trying to compete with New York and with Metropolis to become the biggest city on the coast. So, it's giving a historical perspective of how those things has got their talents into Gotham and how it's always has been a corrupt city from the start. And it just kind of builds a history for Batman. Normally I don't like when everything is tied up so tight as far as a history for Gotham. But since that's the route that they already started going, even before the 52 with Batman to pull it, even it, once you've they've moved in that direction, it just made sense to pull it nice and make it a real nice tight bundle, which is what All Star Western has done. Plus, the characters are written amazing. You know, there's always a great laugh in here, and you know Jonah Hex is a bastard, and it's fun to read. I'm gonna go ahead and jump across the street over to the Amazing Spider-Man, which uh, I mentioned that uh, there was a new arc with uh, two This was. Uh, actually came out this week, which I didn't expect it to. Uh, but 692 was a great uh, beginning of an arc. Actually is part of a 50th anniversary uh, special. This was a double-sized book uh, featuring a couple of extra stories. All of which were well told. There's one that actually takes place. Uh, many of you may remember the uh, Spider-Man story where Spider-Man actually quits um, the photo, the uh, panel where Spider-Man's leaving the spider suit in a garbage can is famous. In fact, they even copied it for the second Spider-Man movie by Sam Raimi. They, they used that scene as inspiration of Spider-Man giving up the suit to try and live a normal life. And they, they tell a story that actually happens in that gap as a criminal finds the spider suit and actually uses it um, to fail at perpetrating crimes, but then in the end he uses it for an act of goodness and uh, then returns it back to the garbage can. So it, it, that's an interesting tale. It was wonderful way of just kind of putting it right there in the middle of that gap where Parker had left the suit. Um, it, it showed that these that villains too are heroes. Uh, one of the things that you hear about in writing class is that a villain is still the hero of their own story. And this that little sub story uh, really touched on that. And made it for a great little character story. But the main story here, written by Dan Slott, who's the ongoing, amazing Spider-Man writer, uh, 
and he, uh, with uh, Ramos on art, do a wonderful job in introducing Alpha, who is has a very similar origin to Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man, except for he is affected by uh, Parker beams or uh, Parker rays or something similar to that. Uh, basically, Peter Parker or Parker particles, because Parker found particles that helped make up the mass of the universe, named him after himself like every good scientist does. And unfortunately, during a lab accident, Alpha gets bombarded with the Parker particles, becomes a superhero. It's kind of interesting because they pull in all of the big brains of the Marvel Universe to take a look at the kid. And you've got Iron Man, Mr. Fantastic, Beast, all making a brief appearance in this book to run a test to find out what's going on with Alpha. But Alpha has become Spider-Man's sidekick. How long this will go, I don't know. I'm not too enthralled with the idea, particularly with what they've done, of Alpha being the sidekick. But there are some golden moments in here as Spider-Man tries to deal with being a role model. And I think that's really the most important part of the of this story, is Spider-Man being the role model for another character. And I think that's really what they wanted when they decided to create the character of Alpha, was create a character for Spider-Man to be a role model for, to pass that ever so important of with great power comes great responsibility, which somehow got left out of the newest Spider-Man movie. So uh, I'm not sure how they were able to do Spider-Man without that, um, but somehow they did. Uh, those are all the comic books we read this week. Uh, we also had uh, a sneak preview of a comic book called Revolution Isle 9. This is by Brady Sullivan. Um, he uh, was able to get us some digital copies of it for us to read, and we're going to um, I'll Justin tell you about it next week, what he felt. I read the book. I enjoyed it. It's a fun, campy read. Um, if, you, if you take it too seriously, you're not going to be able to get the most out of it. You, this is a book that if you just watched Evil Dead, you know, then you'll probably be able to get into this. Now, they're two entirely different fields, but that style of humor that you get from those Sam Raimi book, uh, movies you know, where you know it's tongue-in-cheek stuff. Actually, the what I was thinking of that may be most applicable to this is Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin. If you remember those movies where it's the kids setting the traps for the burglars and they're all improbable and overdone. There's elements of that type of fun in this book. Uh, the basic premise is a soldier in the Union Army is running from the Redcoats during the Revolutionary War, pisses off the witch, and is cast into a WoW Mart, which is like a S Mart or a Kmart or a WoW or a Walmart, Wally World. Um, it's just a giant mega store, and he decides, or Based on how absurd things are, he feels that he still has to fight for freedom in this world that he doesn't quite understand. Uh, the digital reading experience for me uh, of this wasn't spectacular. I wound up reading it on my phone because that was the best thing I had. I did look at it a little bit on a, on a regular computer screen, and unfortunately the scrolling up and down didn't work very well for me. Luckily, this book is done mostly in your standard nine-panel grid, 
or eight or a six panel grid, making it fairly easy to line up two panels, read through them, scroll to the next two, read through them. Uh, simple as simple art, but you don't need strong detailed art with this. It works well for the story. Um, and again, if it was a fun story, there wasn't a whole lot of laugh out loud moments. And I think part of it was the way that it started off. It definitely didn't quite fit into. It didn't quite shove itself into the mold of humor that it uh, that it kind of felt tongue in cheek. What it became, I don't know if that was maybe I put it in there because that was the way I could best deal with it. And he intended it as a straight drama story or you know, action story, uh, but it's definitely an over the top action flick type story with that, you know, Macaulay Culkin, Rube Goldberg type traps going on. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it, it suffers from some of the same plot holes of, you know, did nobody talk to this guy? They did speak English. He did speak English. Everybody around him was speaking English. So, yeah, if but as a one shot, it was actually pretty good. Now, if he was going to continue building on this, I think a lot of stuff that I would have liked to have seen in this was left out simply because he was doing it as a one shot. Um, there was some character. There's a detective who comes in and is finally able to uh, apprehend the uh, revolutionary soldier. I think if this had been going on for more than a single issue, I would have liked to have seen a bit more about that detective maybe running the show a bit more before he goes in. Some more development in him. And even the revolutionary has very little development. And what we do get for development from him is his writing to his wife or his girlfriend. And he, you know, it starts off and you're in revolutionary times and you're writing this letter and you're not sure, you know, it seems like he's maybe trapped or, you know, Behind, he's behind enemy lines. I'm not sure if he's going to survive to be able to get this letter out to his girlfriend and writing it at revolutionary times. And then, it, of course, it's, you find out later on he's writing from you know, this whole other time period in 2012 instead of the Revolutionary War, the 1776 era. Uh, so um, it, it is kind of interesting, but I think some of the storytelling, maybe I think at that point it was purposely done to throw you off. As, yeah, we're set in 1776, fighting the war. Oh, wait. Now we're elsewhere. Um, so, but it, given that it was as a one shot, I'm willing to forgive those because you are fighting for space. You've only got, you know, the 24 or so pages that you're going to do as a single issue, 22, 24 pages. Um, so, but, uh, you know, Brady uh, did go ahead and get us that information. Um, he also does a webcomic called Death Springs, which Death Springs is a Western. And uh, I felt the storytelling was a little bit choppy, and I'm wondering if that's because it was written to go out one page at a time into a, you know, one page goes out onto the web, um, again, I read this on my phone, um, so I, I was able to, you know, just kind of scroll through. The panel layouts weren't quite as easy to read on the small digital device. I, I wish I had a tablet of some sort to try reading these on. Maybe I'd have that, had a better reading experience. But as far as story goes, 
um, both you know, Revolution 909 and Death Springs that were well thought out. I actually think Death Springs seemed to be a bit stronger of the storytelling, even though it did seem a little bit choppy. Uh, it follows uh, two pairs of brothers that grew up together as friends. Uh, two of them, uh, one one family of brothers, they went off and became criminals. One family became the sheriff and his deputy. And uh, they go at it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a bank robbery by the uh, pair that are robbers. And, of course, the sheriff and his brother have to go after them because they're the law. Uh, during the apprehension, one of the guys is shot, which brings us to Death Springs, which is a ancient Indian uh, spring that imbues life onto those that have had uh, contact with its waters. Unfortunately, because of the way that the Indians were treated, it went from being a life-bearing spring to an undead-bearing spring. So those that partake of its waters no longer return to life they actually become more of a zombie and so by the end of this first issue which he's got 22 pages up being the making up the first digital issue of this comic and yet yeah, they're done in a traditional comic book you know eight and a half by 11-esque page uh, by the end of this you've got your hero in trouble facing off against what's become a town of zombies that have been brought back by the brothers who robbed the bank. So it, it's a well-told story. Uh, I can't really say it's well-told. It's a little bit choppy at points, and I don't know if that's just between the loading times of going page to page um, and, and the problems with it. Um, again, as with the Revolution Isle 9, I felt there were parts that they could have gone into a bit deeper with the story that would have explained a bit more about some characters, developed a bit more. And since it seems like Death Springs is going to be more of an ongoing, they could have explored, you know, rather than just telling you that the brothers grew up together. And, and maybe for a first issue, they didn't need to get into this. Um, but, you know, showing you, you know, their life as young kids growing up, what they did. You know, how they would pal around together as opposed to just telling you that. Um, there's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where he brings the Native American tribe back into this. Um, as, you know, it was their uh, medicine man, um, who brought them to the, who brought them to the Death Springs and, you know, used to tell stories to the brothers as kids who would sneak out to hear the stories. Um, so there's definitely some well thought out and and well placed backstory and history, and in the creation of these characters, but they also kind of felt rather okay. This is a standard Western sheriff and his brother. This is a standard Western, yeah, you know, bank robber, train robber, and his brother. So the the characters. Then again, in a single issue, maybe there's not quite enough there to pull these characters out. Um, it certainly is an interesting enough story to take another look at. Um, I probably would prefer having physical copies of the books in my hand to review than having done it digitally. Um, and I, I don't know if Death, if he plans on actually publishing Death Springs as a physical book, but I know you can go to the Death Springs website and 
purchase a physical copy of Revolution Isle 9. He's also making it available as a web purchase um, from that store, and I believe he's got a couple of other sites. Uh, check out the uh, Death Springs website, which I think is deathsprings.com, um, and you'll get, be able to get information on both Death Springs, read Death Springs, the first issue online, and uh, find out how to get uh, Revolution Isle 9. So, uh, we had a little bit of comic news coming up. Uh, mostly this is on the uh, DC side of things. Uh, DC has announced that they're going to be doing a new Justice League of America title. This will be separate from the JLA title. Um, it's going to hit in, in 2013. Um, and it's going to be interesting because they're going to continue the JLA title, as far as I can tell, but the Justice League of America title is going to feature an entirely new team. Uh, we're going to have Green Arrow, Katana, Martian Manhunter, uh, a new Green Lantern, Stargirl, Vibe, Hawkman, and Catwoman. Now, of these... And in the new, and in the free comic book days, we saw the new Green Lantern, we saw Vibe, uh, we saw Stargirl and Green Arrow. So, you know, there's they've, they've already been hinting about these people um, making up the team. It, it's interesting that DC feels they're going to get away with you know both Justice League of Justice League of America and JLA. Um, however, the team is strong. Uh, Jeff Johns is writing it with Finch on art. Um, so I'm not sure if he's going to stay on uh, Batman Dark Knight uh, or if he's just going to move straight over to uh, Justice League of America when they launch that. Um, they've already shown that there's going to be a clash between the two teams. Uh, this is certainly something leading up to or part of the Trinity War. And the uh, other two members of the team, if you want to call them that, are Steve Trevor, of course, has been the liaison for JLA. And some mysterious behind-the-scenes person who's giving orders to Steve Trevor. Likely that's going to be Amanda Waller. But maybe, maybe not. We'll see where DC goes with that. Um, I just find it interesting. I don't normally talk a whole lot about upcoming series. Uh, but this seemed just like a huge story. Uh, particularly being that it's Justice League. And introducing a whole new dynamic for the team. And even for the DC Universe as a whole. Now, the other thing is, we already—I mentioned that some of these characters have made an appearance fighting the current JLA lineup in the New Fifty Two comic that they put out uh, back in May on Free Comic Book Day, uh, which shows just how far ahead DC has been thinking with a lot of these books. Um, some of that's been seen in the Green Lantern titles, like I was talking about, and you know, it's it's interesting because I think that the editorial staff. Uh, along with some key writers have known where this has all been heading, but a lot of the writers haven't had that purview or either aren't privy to that information or haven't been able to quite grasp how it affects them. Um, one of those may, may or may not be Rob Layfield, who has quit DC uh, to quote himself, to, to quote Layfield, to preserve my sanity. Uh, apparently he's had some uh, problems with the editors, some last-minute rewrites, some changing of things and how they were supposed to be presented or what they were supposed to do. Um, he hasn't been happy. Um, I know just will be happy because this may mean that Grifter is going to get a new... This will mean that Grifter is going to get a new co-plotter on it um, or a new writer. Um, it means that Deathstroke the Terminator is getting a new creative team and Hawkman is getting a new writer. So... Uh, Layfield is a controversial figure in comic books. 
Uh, but it also goes to show just how DC may or may not have their act together um, when uh, a couple months back, you know, there were some other creators that have had problems with DC editorial on how they've been running books. It makes you wonder just how much uh, creative freedom these writers have when they're writing these books, especially when they're being tied into what are apparently much larger story arcs that have to have the universe entirely in place. It's one thing that, as a reader, I think we tend to get to be able to enjoy is just how well these books all mesh together and how when you read one book and you pick up the next book, you can see the effects um, almost immediately in those issues of the tie-ins. But that also really ties the hands of the creators. Uh, it may be one of the reasons why a lot of fan-favorite characters haven't been able to make appearances is because DC does actually have plans for these characters down the line. Uh, I know some of them, such as Wally West and Donna Troy, they've said, we're keeping them on the sidelines because we're not sure what we're going to do with them. But if we show them, then we're already starting to commit to what we have to use them for. If we don't show them, we can keep that open and use them for whatever we want when we find the appropriate use for them. Uh, I know Stephanie Brown is a sideline character. A lot of people are missing Cassandra Kane, who was uh, Batgirl for a while. Uh, uh, Stephanie was also Batgirl for a while, uh, but probably more known as the spoiler. Uh, so these are characters that I know a lot of people are calling out for to see the DC Universe. And I suspect some of them DC may not have a full plan for, but they kind of have an idea of where they're headed that they want these characters to pop up. So um, I think that's frustrating some of the writers particularly those that are not as involved in coming up with the overall stories and arcs. Uh, and, you know, if a lot of them leave, that maybe DC doesn't have enough talent, I think. They, they do have a strong stable right now, but the more fed up these writers are getting, is it going to leave a bitter taste in the fans' mouths because they're not getting the stories of the quality they deserve because they're being forced into having so much unified in the uh, in the rest of the universe. So, either way, I think I can safely speak for Justin that he's happy that Rob Liefeld is leaving DC. On another front for other publishers, uh, something that actually takes fairly big balls to do in the comics industry right now, Blue Water Comics is leaving Diamond. Diamond is the distributor for almost all uh, comic books that are out on the market. Everything else is kind of a small independent. Uh, they have... Uh, requirements on how many you have to sell in order to stay in the book. Um, and really, they only a lot of companies complain that the only two people that they care about are Marvel and DC, being the two biggest companies in comics. Diamond, of course, makes sure that those or, that their orders are fulfilled for Marvel and DC, because if either of those companies are happy, it means a lot of revenue lost for Diamond. Other companies, um, even some even companies like Image, because their comics sell in much lower quantities, they can't put the pressure on Diamond financially to make them... You know, I know there are some books that I've requested. I think one of them was an, is an image book that unfortunately didn't ship out uh, properly for my store's order, and they've never been able to get a replacement in. Diamond shows that they have replacements, you know, available quantity on hand, but they've never shipped it out. And that I've heard from a number of uh, people, including some smaller publishers that that's common for diamond that the only back issues that they tend to send out 
um, or that they do within any reasonable amount of time as DC and Marvel. So, with the problems of Diamond laid out on the table, Blue Water said, you know what? We're going to pull out. We're not going to be distributed by Diamond because they don't want to distribute some of our comics because they're not meeting what Diamond's requirements are. So, we're going to go with a company called Comic Flea Market, uh, which, you know, what this is going to do is change their dynamic. Uh, Comic Flea Market is going to be their distributor, distributor and their printer. Uh, they're of course also going to make their comic books available digitally, and you can buy from Comic Flea. Uh, their website, comicfleamarket.com, and uh, you can get digital copies that way, or you can order print copies of all of Blue Water's books. What they're going to do is print those on demand, which completely changes the dynamic of the comic book industry because traditionally, a publisher says, we expect it to sell Y copies. We're printing Z copies. And if they oversell Y, it'll be, they'll, it'll hopefully buy up, make most of those sales up to Z. And, you know, unfortunately, for low selling comics, Z is going to be a low number. And what happens is people buy all those comics and now they can't get their hands on them. So those comics go up at least for a short time in value. Eventually, the numbers do come down, and there are some comic books, uh, particularly a very popular series such as Walking Dead, where those uh, issues, because there's no availability, become very rare and become worth a lot of money. With print-on-demand, your, your uh, comic shop can go, hey, we need this book, and order one. It'll be printed for them and sent back and sent to the comic shop for you to have you know, in a, in a couple of weeks, meaning that there is no more scarcity of, oh, we did a print run of 15,000 copies and person 15,001 just doesn't get one. Uh, with this model, uh, they'll be able to do print on demand. And the interesting thing is, with the technology that's out there, Marvel, DC, Image, pretty much any of the large companies could easily, if they have, if they don't already have a suit set up already, could easily do it. Um, they're probably just sticking with their older models uh, because it creates that artificial scarcity because they know based on their current figures what numbers those are going to be. And you know, they like, I think a lot of people like the fact that comic books become collectibles. You can't just go, oh, I want this book that's three years old. Let me get it digitally printed for me. Now, maybe one of the things Blue Water is going to do is say after a certain point or after a certain number of sales, they're going to do an alteration, do an alternate cover or something of that nature, which A, may get people to buy new books because they want the alternate version, or B, make it so that it really does create that scarcity of the first 1,500 or the first 15,000 comics have the original cover. After that, anything, even though it's print on demand and you can get a copy, have an alternate version cover, so they're not going to be worth as much. So, that's the that's it for comic book news this week. I've got a couple of other stories, um, including uh, one with video games, uh, which I'll probably discuss with Justin a little bit later. Uh, but Ubisoft is claiming uh, PC piracy rates of ninety three to ninety five percent, which yeah, Justin I know has already put in. That he's saying that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. Uh, those numbers seem extremely high. And actually, the article that we 
we're reading on this also calls it bullshit, uh, depending on how you want to look at the numbers. Uh, but, yeah, that's the thing with statistics is you can distort them however you want. You know, if they're saying, well, we're showing that, you know, Y number is playing the game, but Z is how many actually paid for it, and Z is, you know, only 5% of Y, then, you know, 93 to 95% is stolen. However, not all of those copies would have been purchased legally if the only way to play it was to purchase it legally. So some of that is not missing sales uh, because people that get stuff for free will play it for free, for free uh, even if they would never have played it if they actually had to pay for it. So there, there's that aspect of it. Um, there's there's number massaging. Uh, but uh, Ubisoft also is claiming that's why they don't worry about free-to-play is that even in free to play, only about five, three to five percent of the people are actually paying for the items inside the game, and the rest are just mooching and playing it for free. Um, now, there, there's a lot more details that we could go into with this, uh, but basically, Ubisoft is saying, you know, charging for games is going to give us the same amount of pay as doing something free to play with buy ins. So, it definitely made for an interesting little headline, uh, but to say that you know, 93 to 95% of video games are pirated is easily an understatement, or an overstatement, and uh, something that should be called bullshit on. It's it's more of a headline that's just going to get people talking about it, which it did, because I'm talking about it, and probably uh, next time Justin and I are together, we may even debate it again. In uh, straight-up news, uh, I'd like to say farewell and goodbye to Neil Armstrong, the man who has died um, at 82, was the first man to walk on the moon. He should not be confused with Lance Armstrong, as a number of tweets on the internet were showing up. But uh, Neil Armstrong inspired a generation of humans to go forth and conquer, uh, showed us that anything was possible that yeah. and of course uh, yeah, he wasn't the only person up there, uh, Neil Armstrong Buzz Aldrin, but uh, we want to say farewell to you, uh, Neil um, in other space news the Curiosity rover the one that we landed on Mars the giant Volkswagen that we put on Mars um, has uh, actually started moving around, it, you know, they spent a couple of days just taking pictures and testing out Seeing what if anything broke and uh, making sure the machine was working properly, testing the steering mechanisms. Finally, started making tracks and moving. Um, it also uh, wanted to say hello and uh, happy birthday to uh, its friends. Uh, it tweeted out, "Happy birthday, Ray Bradbury! My favorite Martian chronicle, chronicler would have been 92 years old today." He also and follow up that tweet with another one saying, "In tribute." I dedicate my landing spot on March to you, Ray Bradbury. Greetings from Bradbury Landing. So, uh, the uh, landing location of the uh, Mars Curiosity rover is now Bradbury Landing, and it will go forth and discover more things about the alien landscape, um, which will uh, be great with the you know, Martian uh, theme of many of Ray Bradbury's books. Uh, he passed away uh, earlier this year. And uh, one other person to say goodbye to, and that is Jerry Nelson. He passed away this past Thursday. 
He was a puppeteer and voice actor. Many of us would know him from our days watching Sesame Street as the puppeteer and voice behind Count Von Count. I want to count. One, ah, ah, ah. Two, ah, ah, ah. Three, ah, ah. Of course, uh, that wasn't his only role. He also was the puppeteer and voice of Gobo Fraggle from Fraggle Rock and the Electric Mayhem bassist Sergeant Floyd Pepper. So, uh, may he also rest in peace. Um, in a bit happier news, uh, we were reported last week on uh, the uh, O'Neill and Matthew, Matthew Inman, uh, the uh, publisher of the O'Neill and cartoonist for them, uh, or he is the O'Neill, um, he's been raising money to build a Tesla museum to honor Tesla, the guy who uh, lost out the popularity contest to Edison. Uh, so we're just going to follow up on that. They have over a million dollars raised so far. They've still got um, about a month left to raise the 850000 So they've cleared their mark. Um, all of the money that they raised from this point on will go to restoring the uh, Tesla's laboratory, which is on site that they're turning into museum, towards actually restoring it so it can be used as the museum and uh, purchasing or uh, or rebuilding things for the displays of the museum. Um, two of the donors uh, actually reached the uh, $33,333 level. Um, there were two spots for that in the Indiegogo uh, market, which will get them advertising on the oatmeal. Uh, two donors have actually taken those $33,333 uh, level donations. So, uh, Unfortunately, you can't make that level, but they still have plenty of other levels that you can donate at. And, uh, you know, if, if you're interested, you know, you, you can go, you know. Uh, apparently, Tesla was fond of the number three, so there's a $3 level that you can budget. at. Um, so it's wonderful to see that you know, these crowdsourcing you know, things, you know, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, um, are not just used for commercialized products. Um, I think some of the what they can be used for is restricted by the sites, but um, you know, that the fact that this is to do a museum that the public will be able to visit and learn about Tesla and how he contributed and thought with uh, Edison about electricity and what they both have contributed to our uh, everyday lives. Um, there is a, uh, I guess I lied, uh, apparently this has been a big week for losses as uh, Tony Scott, uh, brother of Ridley Scott, um, has, uh, died of, uh, um, he jumped from a bridge, um, committing suicide, or at least that's what the coroner's recent reports have said. Um, he directed such movies as Top Gun. Um, there were rumors of brain cancer. He did not, the coroners have ruled, he did not have brain cancer. So, um, if you hear that, that is a f rumor. It is not true. Um, but uh, he, you know, again, he, he was the director of movies like Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Crimson Tide. Um, so, we're going to miss him in the movies that we got to see. 
um, because of him. Um, you know, he was a, a great artist. Um, those were fun movies, and uh, it's just going to be. Uh, you know, we got a lot of people that have uh, gone on their own way uh, from this earth. So, a couple of other stories that um, I know Justin was excited to talk about. Unfortunately, with him being sick, he'll have to cover those next week. So, I will let him. Uh, discuss those next week, uh, something you can look forward to uh, about establishing an exercise routine and understanding fragrance terminology, the language of cologne. So I'm, something about that struck his fancy, so I'll let him go ahead and talk about those. Uh, and uh, Doctor Who will be premiering September 1st on uh, BBC America. That's also Justin's bag, so uh, I'm sure he'll have something a bit more interesting to say about that than I will. If you want to get a hold of us, all of our information is available at about.me slash comicbooktesseract. That's our uh, digital business card. We've got our phone number. You can call us. You can text us. You can leave us a voicemail. Our email address, comicbooktesseract at gmail.com, can be found there. Um, we're also available um, through comicbooknerd.com. We want to thank them. Uh, they, they were actually the ones that got us in touch with... Uh, Brady Sullivan for uh, Revolution, Isle 9, and Death Springs um, came through uh, com the Comic Book Nerd website. Um, so visit comicbooknerd.com. Check out, uh, they got news on the latest, uh, what's coming out with comics, action figures, cosplay, conventions. And again, uh, all of our information, our Facebook page, our G Plus page, available at about.me slash comicbooktesseract. So uh, go ahead and let us know what you think about the show, how we can improve it. We'll be happy to do so. And uh, go ahead and uh, let us know what you think. I'm Jason Poliath, and I will see you next time we step inside the Tesseract.